One of the biggest problems in our lives is we don't know what truth looks like. We live in a world full of so much falsehood. We live in a world where everything is fake. What do they call it in Hollywood? Smoke and mirrors. Everything is fake. And so how do we find truth? If somebody said, this is truth, this is not true, what are you going to say to them? How do you know? Prove it. How do you know this is true and this is not true? You decided you live in 2011. How do you know that this is true? Maybe it's true today. And even the greatest scientists will tell you, it is true today, but may not be true tomorrow. Is it true? No, that's not true. That's truth until proven not true, which it will be proven not true, so it's not true. So we want to understand today not only the hierarchy and the structure of Kabbalah, but also the structure of truth. And how do we know what's true and what's not true? Now, I, I'm, I'm warning you, this is, my, this is my fair warning. I don't think we're going to get through everything tonight. But what I do know is that if we don't get through everything, we'll finish it next week. And I have some additional readings for you I put in the back as well, which will probably help you in, in your journey. So let's start off with an introduction. Please, if I go too fast, stop me. If you have any questions, stop me. This is about us learning together. This is a process that we're going to do together, and we're going to try to understand this together. Some of the stuff I'm going to talk about is very, very difficult and very deep. Some of the stuff takes years of learning to really understand it. If you have any background in Kabbalah, it may help. I highly doubt it, though. So let's introduce ourselves to, this, to the structure I, I, I pulled out a quote for you. It says like this. Study of Zohar exalts the soul. Study of Midrash arouses the heart and psalms with tears scours the vessel. The soul needs Kabbalistic study. The Midrash, which is the homiletics of Judaism, the stories and the the, the, the traditions and the tales and the legends, that's the emotions, the excitement. But then there's psalms, tihilim. The psalms are what uplift us and create the vessel for all of us to understand this. So before we start here tonight, we need to create a vessel. We need to, we can learn all this information. And we can have a fantastic experience here for the next hour and 15 minutes or hour and 20 minutes. The problem is that we'll leave there and we'll say, wow, that was amazing. And they're going to say, what did he talk about? I don't know. We need to have a vessel to open ourselves up and try to accept, try to be able to receive the information. Kabbalah Translates as receiving. The whole relationship of studying Kabbalah is about receiving. The way we receive is by opening ourselves up, creating a vessel. One of the many ways of creating a vessel, one of the ways is through reciting psalms. That's one of the ways of creating a vessel. So, number one. An introduction. Kabbalah. Kabbalah is the wisdom to realize and experience God in our world, in which can often seem as if this world is godless. So many people navigate the world denying God, not caring about the fact that there's a creator or a higher power. In this time and age, that people are becoming interested in the inner dimension of reality. In the Torah, this is reflected and taught in the works of Kabbalah. Kabbalah is first concerned with coming close to God, creator of the universe. In order to come close to God, one has to intellectually comprehend the stages of the continual recreation of reality. At every moment, God creates all 
of reality anew. Question. If God wanted to destroy the world, how would God do it? He would stop talking. Stop creating. No floods, no fires, no earthquakes, no hurricanes. Just stop creating. Every single moment, this world is created brand new. Boom, like that. Brand new world. So you think that a moment ago, you made a mistake. You think a moment ago, you did something wrong. Guess what? Brand new world now. You can start all over again. Right now. And now. And now. Every moment, we have the ability to start all over again. This appreciation begins with the intellectual comprehension of how creation takes place. It's not the order to become wise in the physics of creation. Wisdom is just a tool in order to become close to God, in order to be able to meet the Creator through comprehension of the process of creation. Ask a physicist, why do you study physics? Say, oh, I like to understand the deeper realm. Who gives you the right to understand deeper realms? And not only that, but you can go crazy. Ask someone, what's, what's above the heavens? What's beneath the sands of the deepest waters of the earth? What's beneath there? Just thinking about it can make you nuts. It's not our place. We are limited. We are finite. We are limited to time and space. That's all we know. The moment we try to think that we can go beyond time and space, it's not that we can't go beyond time and space. It's that that's not our job. We live in a world of time and space. Going beyond time and space, going beyond this world, defeats the whole purpose of why we're here. You know, we have a limited amount of time. <coughs> we know this in work, right? We have a limited amount of hours of the workday. So you have to decide what's my priority. What's important to me? There's a million things to do. One of the first things I teach you in business management is you have to decipher between urgent and important. There's things that are urgent and there's things that are important. What's more important? Important. Not urgent. Because there's always things that would be urgent. But if you think about it, there's only a few things that are, ur- that are important. That's the first thing that we have to do. So we have to decide that, yes, you know what? You can spend your whole life denying the existence of a creator. And you can challenge it and question it. And believe me, there's a lot to challenge and question. And there's a lot of questions. And they're good questions. They're not bad questions. They're not questions. They must be questioned. You can spend your whole life denying that. Or you can spend your whole life trying to find ways of living in this world and become better in this world, in the finite world that we live. Kabbalah is the mystical tradition of the Jewish people. It has gone through many stages of revelation, even preceding the time of the giving of the Torah. Our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, served and worshipped God and so merited by their virtue and sincerity in their desire to come close to God to many deep understandings of divinity. There's a book by Adam on Kabbalah. There's a book by Abraham on Kabbalah. We have these books in English. Yes. They exist. I don't know if they're all in print, but they definitely exist. I don't know how easy they'll be to read. but the, the, the Kabbalistic tradition is very old. And our forefathers needed them because they were trying to create civilization. They needed to create structure in a world of chaos. And I think today as well, we need to create structure in a world of chaos. So... The same 
principles that they used are, are crucial for us to use today. So let's talk about them. What, what are the roots? What's the, the structure? Tonight I want to talk about the foundation of the Kabbalistic tradition. Once again, I may go into places that you've never gone before. I may come up with words that you've never heard before. Ask me. This is a process. The roots of Kabbalistic tradition can be traced back to the ancient prophetic experience of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The wisdom and insight born in their intimacy with divine form the basis of the spiritual legacy passed on to their children, the 12 tribes of Israel. The ultimate verification of this legacy came at the moment when Israel stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. The heavens parted and the Spirit of God descended from high amidst thunder and lightning fire. In revealing himself to the entire community of Israel, God, in essence, laid bare the hidden core of Kabbalistic truth. With, us, with, with which up to that point had been the privilege of a select few. At the very moment, the verse tells us, Moses ascended up the mountain into a thick darkness where God privately revealed to him the complex divine wisdom and law that was to fill the void that remained after his retreat back into the heavenly sphere. The wisdom that Moses received on Sinai and later passed on to his people was comprised of both esoteric and exoteric elements. The exoteric tradition, or what we call nigla in Hebrew, that which is revealed, became the identified focus of Jewish life, both in study and practice, and for generations thereafter. It is thus it is this tradition that we're familiar with through the classical works of Jewish law and scholarship, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Code of Jewish Law. These are all fall under Nigla, the revealed parts of Torah. On the other hand, the esoteric tradition, known as Nistar, which is hidden, was transmitted to a select few in each generation, suited for intonation into this mysterious depths. This tradition, which is the basis of Kabbalah, wove its way like a hidden thread through the course of Jewish history. At various points throughout the history, the thread would periodically surface as to embellish the evolving spiritual consciousness of our people. Interpreted by men of unusual vision and intelligence, this tradition slowly found its way into written form as works appeared expounding upon both its theoretical and practical aspects. The traditional terminology referring to these two distinct aspects were called Kabbalah Iyunit, contemplative Kabbalah, and Kabbalah Masit, practical Kabbalah. Although we'll see that this can often be quite arbitrary and there's very different types of tradition. So let's start from the beginning. Okay, there is... And I'm going to use the Hebrew because I want you to become... um, I want it to become part of your, your vocabulary. So we have Nigla and Nistar. Nigla means, what does Nigla mean? Revealed. And Nistar is hidden. So the Torah is given on Sinai. The Sinai experience happens. And two things, amazing things happen. Actually, I'll tell you something interesting. I'm going to completely confuse you now, but that's awesome. So basically, what happened there is everything that today is called revealed on Sinai was hidden, and everything that is today called hidden on Sinai was revealed. How do we know that? I'll tell you how we know that. What happened? Does anyone know... The Sinaitic experience, Ezekiel chapter 1, describes the Sinaitic experience. What, what does he say there? He saw a vision. What was the vision? Does anyone know Ezekiel chapter 1? No Bible, no, no Bible is here. <laughs> Moses saw the face of, 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 of an ox. Shen. So that is hidden to us, but it was revealed. Exactly. 
They saw the face of God yeah. on Sinai. Today, do we see the face of God? No. Yeah. Now, the revealed law, the Torah that we have revealed in the, in the ark, was that there at Sinai? Yeah. No, it wasn't. What did Moses come down with? The tablets. Now, what's interesting is, in the tablets were 620 letters in the tablets. What does that represent? Six hundred and thirteen biblical commandments and seven rabbinic commandments. All of the commandments that were going to be written in the five books of Moses were hidden in the tablets by having six hundred and twenty letters. So what today is revealed was then hidden, and what today is hidden was then revealed. You follow this? So this is the beginning. So what happened was the there was there was two parts. I just want to kind of give you an idea over here. There were two parts. There was Torah. I hope you can read it. You can see this. And Torah. There were two types. In the revealed aspects of Torah, what, what was considered study, academia, Torah academia, there was Torah Shadiktav, the written part of Torah, and Torah Shabal Peh, the oral part of Torah. The written part of Torah was, what was the written part of Torah? five books of Moses. It was written. That's why it was called the written part of Torah. So that was now. Let's give an example. In the five books of Moses, there's a passage there in Deuteronomy called the Shema. And in the Shema it says, you shall bind it as a sign upon your head and a reminder upon your heart. What is that reference to? Tefillin. Does everyone know what tefillin is? Yeah. It's the boxes that, men, that, that Jewish men wear in the mornings when they pray. How would we know that? How do we know? Bind it as a reminder, as a sign. Take a little dot, put it over here, and you have your dot. Why do you have to put the big box on your head? We have the oral law. The oral law was not written. It came from the same source, Sinai. Let's put Sinai. We have to know where our source is. Everything came from Sinai. Everything in the tradition came from Sinai. Both the revealed and the hidden. And in the revealed, the written came from Sinai, and the oral came from Sinai. The difference was, is the oral tradition was never written. Nobody ever wrote it down. They spoke it. And they told their children. And their children told their children and their children told their children, and they were keeping a lot of information in their heads. Primarily because it was very hard to write. Unless they were etching it in stone. I mean, let's talk practically. So there was a good reason why not everything was able to be written. Because a lot of this had to be spoken. So now, the oral tradition is huge. The basis of the oral tradition. Now, just to cut to... to so now... now I'll stop there a second. I'm actually, just so you know, the oral tradition was later written. That's how we have it today. It was written down. Today it's things like Mishnah, Talmud, Midrash, etc. Now, interestingly enough, in this oral tradition was something else. Does anyone know what it is? It was an oral tradition. At the same time as the mission of a Talmud, the Midrash was written, something else was written, otherwise known as the Zohar. So let's kind of let's take this the Kabbalah for a second. So the Kabbalah was written. Now there's two aspects of Kabbalah. 
there's Kabbalah. There is Kabbalah contemplative and practical. We're just going to go like this. We'll go contemplative and practical. So, any questions? You got it? going to go through that right now. That's what we're talking about right now. Number three, what is contemplative Kabbalah? Otherwise known in Hebrew is Kabbalah Iyunit or Iyunit. The category to which belong the majority of Kabbalistic texts in circulation today sets out to explain the process whereby the created realm evolved into an autonomous, bounded existence through the will of an infinite creator, which is like this. How does finite come from infinite? How can an infinite God create a finite world? What's our world? Our world is limited. It's a finite world. How can an infinite creator create a finite world. And if God is not finite and just infinite, then God is finite to infinity. I would say that it's our perception. We perceive that the world is infinite, but maybe it's infinite. But if we, if we say that God is finite... Sorry, if, God, if we say God is infinite and not finite, then God is finite to infinity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So this is, this is the, the contemplative Kabbalah. What it is is like this. It, 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 it's elaborating on the nature of the dialogue, of the conversation between creation as it proceeds towards its fulfillment of its destiny and the divine source from which it emerges. Or even on a deeper level, just to go a little deeper, it explores the complex nature of divine reality itself. In particular, the paradox of God being immutable, yet active and reactive in his relationship with creation. How does God come into our lives? How does God play a crucial, important role in creation. An additional aspect of the contemplative tradition is often mistakenly identified with practical Kabbalah. It's the elaboration of various meditative techniques used to ponder the divine subtext of reality. These include the contemplation of divine names, Hebrew letter pronunciation, uh, um, permutations or pronunciations and the ways in which the spherot, the supernal divine forces, harmonize and interact. Some ancient forms of Kabbalistic meditation actually produced a visionary experience of what they called supernal chambers, where God's glory resides. I, I'm, what I'm telling you here is Stay away from, 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 from this kind of stuff. I'll tell you why. Because even though a lot of the texts that you're going to find today do speak of these visions and this contemplative type nature of harmony and, 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 and sefirot and supernal divine names and all these things, everyone's looking for the 72-letter name of God, right? That's all they talk about, the 72-letter name of God. I will tell it to you now, just so you know, we don't know it. Period. So if anyone, if anyone tries teaching you Kabbalah and says they're looking or they know of the 72-letter name of God, it's impossible. We don't know it. There's no one in the world today that knows it. We know, the closest we know is the 36-letter name of God. And that's in our prayer book. <laughs> we say it every single day in the prayers. And no one even knows that. I will show it to you. So you can see it. 
it's said every day. People pray this all the time, and they have no idea what to say. This is actually, this is the closest we have. It's a prayer called Anavikoach. We're not allowed to say it out loud. We have to say it quietly. It's right over here. And if you look in the book, you'll see. You can read it in Hebrew. Uh, in Hebrew, I mean, you, you just, I, can, I can read it in English. But right next to the prayer, you'll see there's 36 letters. In order. This is the 36th letter of God. And just the prayer says something like this. We implore you by the great power of your right hand to release the captive, accept the prayer of your people, strengthen us, purify us, awesome one, mighty one, we beseech you, guard as the apple of the eye those who seek your oneness, bless them, cleanse them, bestow upon them forever your merciful righteousness, etc., etc. But what's interesting about it is every single word begins with one of the letters of the 72 name of God, of the 36th letter name of God. So basically like this. Like, for example, the first word is an aleph, and then a bet, and a gimel, and then a yud, and a taf, and a tzadi, and also here, aleph, bet, gimel, yud. So every first letter in all 36 words, each letter, the first letter, then spell out that name. Kabbalists, the way they'll say this prayer, is they will say the word while looking at the letter. Instead of actually looking at the words, they'll say the word while looking at the letter. As to... Um, as to reference the name. So there are people who use parts of Kabbalah that have either been lost or unknown to us to try to make it mysterious or try to make it into something that is beyond the realm. That's not what Kabbalah is. Kabbalah is very important. Kabbalah is practical. And that's what we're going to go into. The Kabbalah that we use, the Kabbalah that's important to us, is called practical Kabbalah. Just to, just to finish off, even if pursued for the sake of what we call tikkun hanefesh, spiritual improvement, which a lot of people say, well, what I'm doing is, I'm just trying to uh, create spiritual improvement. That's right, I'm just trying to make myself better. So I'm using those meditative techniques the problem is this. Those techniques are void of theosophical reflection and they can still be considered legitimately contemplative by virtue, by virtue of the refining influence upon consciousness. We, our focus, though it's interesting and though a real advanced Kabbalist will go into contemplative Kabbalah, our focus is practical Kabbalah. We're going to try to take the concepts of Kabbalah. We're going to try to take the teachings of Kabbalah and apply them to our lives. Make our lives better. Make our lives more refined. Make ourselves better people. That's the focus of studying Kabbalah. If people focus on studying Kabbalah so they can go into meditations, or they can go study in Mongolia and the mountains, it's a beautiful thing, but it's not our job here. That's the job of the angels. Leave it for the angels. It's a different realm. As we study Kabbalah, we'll learn the realm of the angels. It's not our realm. Our realm is practical. Yes? So why have we been given the information? Why, why have we been given the information? If, we're not, if it is not our world, and if we are not to contemplate it, why have we been given So let me clarify. You can learn it, but don't learn it first. Learn what matters to us first. If you want to become a scholar and you want to go into the contemplative nature, there's a lot of great texts. I mean, there's, there's a text by Abraham called Sefer Yetzira. It's all on contemplative Kabbalah. It's an amazing text. Don't get me wrong. But it, there's absolutely nothing that you can use practical in that text. So why would you start off by trying to turn Kabbalah into this mysterious, uh, episodic, teaching that will allow you to tap into the deepest parts of the creation and psyche. And there's people that have these great sales pitch. One o'clock in the morning infomercials to study Kabbalah, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the point. It's exciting. 
It's exciting for about 30 seconds until you start studying it. You're like, well, what is it? Our goal is practical. So let's go into what is practical Kabbalah. So we understand now what contemplative Kabbalah is. You got it? To a certain extent? Now let's go to practical. Bottom of page two. The true practice of Kabbalah involves techniques aimed specifically at altering, underline, natural states or events. Altering natural states or events. Techniques such as the ritual divine names, the inscription of the divine names, or those of the angels, specifically prepared amulets. Though often termed an occult tradition, Kabbalah Masit is meant to be employed by only the most saintly and responsible of individuals for no other purpose than the benefit of man or creation. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. As far back as the time of the Holy Ari, mid-16th century, there are indications of these techniques being abused by unfit practitioners. The Holy Ari himself exhorted his disciples to avoid practical arts of Kabbalah. He, he deemed the practice unwarranted as long as the state of ritual purity necessary for service in the Holy Temple remained unattainable. The Ari's explanation, in effect, defer the practice of ritual Kabbalah to such time when the temple will be built as a requisite purity which the service requires to be restored. And, and very much, there's a lot of things that changed when the temple was destroyed. There's a lot of mitzvahs, commandments, that we can't do today. So of the 613, we can only do... There is a number, I don't know it offhand, but I think it's 3, 312. I think of 613 or 3, 311, we can only do 311 of the commandments because the temple's not here. So the temple really did embody a lot of the practical parts of Kabbalah and the practical parts of all Jewish spirituality. The Ari's fears proved to be well-founded the, as, the, as the centuries went on and they witnessed the emergence of the pseudo-Kabbalistic movements, driven by either rank opportunism or misguided spirituality, which have compromised the faith of Israel as well as the reputation of legitimate Kabbalistic pursuit. The study of Kabbalah's conceptual foundations within a context of unwavering commitment to normative Torah law provides the best hedge against these corrupt forms of Kabbalistic practice. One of the most famous stories is the Kabbalistic practice of the fashioning of the golem. The 16th century Prague involved none other than the great scholar Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, a leading interpreter of contemplative tradition. There's a lot of speculation around the golem. There's a lot of stories around the golem. Um, we do believe in it. We do believe it happened. And um, people did use practical Kabbalah. They actually were able to, you know, and what's interesting is, remember we started off the class with Emet, with truth? That was written on the forehead of the golem. What's interesting, and I'll show you this. So we said, what did we say? 
emet. This is truth. This is what it looks like. And we said it's the first, middle, and the last letter of the Torah. Take away the Aleph. What is Aleph? One. What is one? God. Take the God out of truth. It turns into a very interesting word. The word met. Death. You take the Aleph. You take the one. You take the God out of truth. And you have death. This is what... This is what the Maharal, Rabbi Yehuda Lohi, when, when he wanted to put the golem to rest, the way he was able to put the golem to rest is he took away the Aleph and the golem went from truth to death. In our lives, often people forget the Aleph, they forget the oneness, they forget the God, they forget the beginning. And so they think they're alive, but they're really not. Sorry, I have a question for Golem. What is Golem? What is it? The Golem was a... You should re research it. It's an interesting story for you to know about. I don't want to go into it, but basically, 16th century Prague, there was a, a great rabbi by the name of the Maharal, Rabbi Yehuda Lohi. And there was people that were hurting the Jewish people at the time. And he created a clay, from clay, from dirt, he created a humanoid who um, would defend the Jewish people. He was called the Golem. We do believe this story. Interestingly enough, the story is written up in the official files of the city of Prague. It's not mythical. It's not mythical at all. We do believe in it. There is. It's very much so Frankenstein. Word, Frankenstein came, came from. Frankenstein came from Golem. The Golem was created from practical Kabbalah. Rabbi Yudaloi knew how to use Kabbalah for practice, and he created the Golem. It's a lot of amazing. I don't want to go into it. It's a whole class all on its own about mythical creatures and and Kabbalistic creatures. We'll go into it one day. We'll, we'll go into we'll, we'll go into all that stuff. But for now, it did exist. You can research, research it online. I think there's a nice Wikipedia article about it. If you want to find out just a little more information, and I can give you some books also. Fascinating stories about what the Golem did and how he helped and saved the Jewish people. Through uh, that was the that, those were the days of the blood libels, when the, the the Christians used to frame the Jews and say that they would uh, they would use the blood of Christian children in their matzah for Passover, and the Golem had saved. I mean, the, and it's funny today it became it became Muslim. Muslim blood. There's a, there was a, a, a television show last year that aired on Turkish TV all about the blood libels, how the Jews use the Muslim blood. It's shocking how the stories just kind of evolve. So I want to go into something very important. Do you follow me? Am, am I going? Is this too deep for you, or we're good? We're very good. Okay. So, I want to go. I'm, it's kind of a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's important for us. Again, we're establishing the foundations of Kabbalah here. So, what is the advantage of wisdom over prophecy? Wisdom over prophecy. And that's, now we're going to actually go into Kabbalah itself. The contemplative tradition, while operating within the realm of routine intellect, provides the optimal medium for attaining divine enlightenment. It's explained in Kabbalah that the capacity for inner reflection derives from the supernal realm, that of the souls, the soul realm, the, hi hi the hierarchy superior, that the form which derives the exotic forces elicited through Kabbalistic practice and that of the angels. The elevation of thought to the point where it invites divine wisdom and understanding constitutes the peak spiritual accomplishment. You see, the problem is like this. We have Chachma and we have Nivua. I really want you to learn these words also. Chachma 
and nevuah, which is wisdom and prophecy. Wisdom over prophecy as a pathway to enlightenment is evident from the teachings of the sages. What does it say? A wise man is greater than a prophet. Though through prophecy one can arrive to the ultimate of divine thought, which means Throughout our tradition, prophets were important, right? Prophets had the divine inspiration. They spoke with God. They had that intuition. They had that power. And there's a lot of people today that will give a lot of credence to their intuition. There's a lot of people today that believe in their intuition. You think today it's bad. You know that if they had a dream 50 years ago, the people had a dream, they would fast for 40 days to abolish the dream. This is real. It happened a lot. This was regular stuff. People had dreams, they would fast 72 fasts, 180 fasts, 180 days, which means they'd fast the whole day and eat at night. 180 full days. These were real things. People could not sleep at night over dreams. People were afraid to go to sleep in case they'd have a bad dream. People would say special prayers and they would put themselves in these these spiritual states as not to have a bad dream. Because wow. bad dream meant bad things will happen to you. People believed it. I'm not going to go into dreams tonight, but I will tell you the basis of Kabbalistic dreams is like this. Whatever you believe, that's what's real. Period. So, prophecy in the hierarchy was very important, right? If you look in the Bible, you look in the, in the prophets, you'll see what, what prophecy, when it was prevalent in society, was very, very important. The problem was like this. We live in this world. We live in the world of consciousness, not in the world of divine intuition. So prophecy does not exist in our lives. So wisdom is important. We need to know. When you know, you have the power to experience greater things. Wisdom by virtue of its conceptually and abstraction serves to generalize one's experience of the world into the terminology of ordinary consciousness, thus rendering it conveyable to others. Exactly what we're doing here right now. We're create, we have wisdom. Now, what we can do is we can have prophecy, right? And what I can tell you is, see, I have a vision. My vision is that there's something called contemplative and there's something called practical. And these are two types of Kabbalah. And this vision is seeing, I could feel it. We can meditate on it. Practical, contemplative, practical, <laughs> contemplative. You know what it is? Either you're going to love me or you're going to hate me. <laughs> if you're the prophecy style, you're going to say, yes, bring it on, Rabbi. And if you're the wisdom style, if you're like, prove it, you say, what's crazy quack? <laughs> prophecy is not practical in our lives. We need the wisdom. We need to, to piece it apart understand where it comes from, and then understand each individual concept. So, Kabbalah as the, <clears throat> as the framework within which Jews have historically evolved their unique understanding of reality repre represents both the legacy of prophecy and that of wisdom. There's something in Judaism called gematria. Gematria is like this. Every single Hebrew letter has a numerical equivalent. Aleph is one, and Bet is two, and so on and so on. So if you have a word, you actually have a numerical calculation on that word. Right? So, for example, let's just take a word like Chachma, which is Ches, Chach. 
Mem hey, Chachma is 8, 20, 40. We'll do this another time. We'll talk about it. So that's 65 and 8 is uh, 73. So Chachma in numerology is not Chachma. It's 73. And we will go on and on and on. There's actually a whole world of numerology, of, Jewish, of Kabbalistic numerology, of which we study just the number and the meaning of that word based on its number. And every single word has a Kabbalistic number. And numbers connect, and numbers have meanings. For example, Chachma, seven and three being together, being ten, which is really one, represents a certain style of a person. There are people who are, who are having contemplative styles. There are ones, and there's different people. You have a number. You actually have a Kabbalistic number and a, numerolog a numerological number that represents you, and we can figure it out. Maybe some other time we'll talk about what your number is, and we actually know a lot about you based on your number. Is like. this the name of people? The you can do it through your name. You can do it through your birthday. You can do it, but what's interesting is almost everyone, come, it all comes out the same. No matter how you do it, it'll all come out the same. Yeah, what does it reveal? Oh, we know a lot about you. Huh? Yeah, sure. Just give me your birthday. I'll tell you everything about you. Oh. Now you're scared. No, no, no. I want no more. <laughs> Don't be scared. <laughs> so, the gematria of the word Kabbalah itself is 137 which is equal to the combined value of the words Chachma, 73, and Nevuah, 64. So Kabbalah is prophecy and wisdom. How do we figure that out? Through numerology. We understand the basis of all Kabbalah, or the basis of all spiritual thought, through numbers. You know, how, you know why? Because God used numbers to create the world. Computers. How do they operate? On numbers. That's right. It's called the binary code. Exactly. Kabbalah. The world was created through numbers. So everything comes down to numbers. And you think Kabbalah, the word Kabbalah, I'm just giving you a little bit of a glimpse into numerology here. A little glimpse. Chachma and Nevuah, wisdom and prophecy, together make up Kabbalah. Are you ready? Okay, I'm going to go into my last thought for tonight. Well, almost my last thought for tonight. I call it Hasidism, Kabbalah's final frontier. You see, most of us know this. The movie's... Popular culture knows this. Can't study Kabbalah till how old? 40. 40. And the truth is, this is, this is accurate. You cannot study Kabbalah till 40. But something happened. I started talking a little bit about it last week, and I'm going to go into it now. It happened in Poland in about 335, 340 years ago. There was, you can look this up on Wikipedia, the Chimoniki pogroms. The Chimoniki pogroms, fascinating story. The Polish army decided to attack the Russians. You ever try attacking a Russian? <laughs> they came back with a vengeance. Not only did they destroy the Polish army, they put them into Poland. And they went through Poland. The Polish army was retreating into Poland. Russia took over Poland. And what the Polish army did, they were so devastated. They had to pick on someone. So who did they choose? The Jews, of course. And so they killed out basically all the Jews of Poland. Basically, 90% maybe even more than 90% of the Jews of Poland. In their retreat, they just went through town and town of Jewish life and destroyed everything. A couple years later, there was a young man, a young rabbi, and he realized that he would have to 
if he wanted to continue Judaism, if Judaism were to continue in, in Poland, he'd have to revive the people. There's an interesting piece of Kabbalah. It's about fainting. When someone faints, there's a Kabbalistic remedy for waking them. You whisper their name into their ear. Why? Because the name is deeper than the faint. The name is more connected to the soul than the faint. The faint put the soul in a certain state of unconsciousness. The name can go deeper. So the name will wake up the person. So the Jewish community in Poland was fainted. And the only way to revive them was to whisper their names into their ears. To give them a new sense of identity. He was a storyteller. So he went traveling the countryside telling stories. Uplifting the spirits of the fainted Jews, so to speak. Eventually, he became the great Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. And he re-inspired the Jews of Poland, and then later the Jews of Russia, and now the Jews of the world. And now really the people of the world. Modern Kabbalah, the Kabbalah, authentic Kabbalah, that we know, is the work of Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov. I'm talking about the flowery stuff. I'm talking about the real stuff. And he basically, what he did was, he, um, he realized that the Kabbalah's attempt at bringing the, mis the mysteries of creation into closer proximity of man's own experience had expressed itself perhaps most radically in this time. See, the Baal Shem Tev, who was, um, he emphasized the components of man's inner experience which correlate with the supernal forces discussed in classical Kabbalah. He explained that it was by the interface between the sefirot and the human psyche that Hasidut hoped to bring Kabbalistic thought and practice into its final frontier. What the Baal Shem Tev did was he proceeded beyond Kabbalistic convention and he forged a new path of service. It's an interesting story. It says that the Baal Shem Tev once restored the use of a divine name in order to cross an impassable river, only to regret what he considered to be the unnecessary employment of a supernal divine power. After spending many years doing atonement for the act, he once again found himself at the edge of a raging stream and crossed it by restoring to no more than simple faith. At that time, there were two types of people. The people who were learned and the people who were unlearned. That was it. The people who were unlearned didn't know anything. So when their whole life collapsed in front of them, what were they going to do? Resort to wisdom? There was no wisdom. Resort to prophecy? Prophecy was gone. They had nothing. So he was inspiring people that had nothing. And he had to do it through simple faith and teach them the power of faith. Teach them the power of that which is beyond them. Teach them to believe in a higher power. Teach them to be one with the world, with God, and not one with garbage. Not one with something else. The classical tradition of Kabbalah can be considered chatzoni, can be considered superficial, relative to that of chassidut, which by focusing upon immediate experience identifies aspects of divinity which the highly formal and abstract system of Kabbalah introduce, introduction leaves unexplored. One of the basis of Hasidic thought, of modern Kabbalistic thought, is something called bitul. This is very important. And this is something we'll probably spend a lot of time on over the next number of weeks. It's called bitul, which means nullification.
You see, if I'm full of me, if I'm the greatest thing that ever happened since chicken soup, where are you going to fit into my life? How important are you to me? Not at all. I don't care about you. You're nothing. You're a little piece of dirt. And you know who I am? I'm the greatest thing that ever happened. There's absolutely no way for human beings to live in this world in an egotistical state. We need our emotions, we need our passion, but not our ego. Our ego creates a boundary between us and the rest of the world. I am the king and you are the subject in my world. The whole world revolves around me. If you want to revolve around me, you can come into my world. It's a great relationship, isn't it? Great, great relationships happen that way. The people get into relationships every day thinking just like that. You want to come into my world, you can get into a relationship with me. You know what they're saying? There's no space for you in my world. I don't have any space for you. I don't want anyone in my world. I am too full of myself to put anything else into my world. And so, they get married to themselves. So then you have the basis of modern Kabbalistic thought, the basics of Hasidut. It's called bitl, nullification. What does it mean? The loss of self. Nullification. I'm no, I'm nothing. I am nothing. Egoless. I'm egoless. I'm nothing. You know who I am? I'm nothing. I am nothing, right? That's not that. Bittel is, is, is nothingness. It's where somebody negates all their ego, all of their, their feeling of self-worth. So, Sarit so has a problem. You know what happens? You become a doormat. And that's why we have to study Kabbalah. That's why we have to study this. <laughs> because the whole basis of studying Kabbalah, this whole hierarchy... Well, it's not like this. Today, this is the most important part of navigating this world. To be bitter, but still be strong. To be able to be completely nullified, completely egoless, but strong. It makes me think of Moshe. That's he was bitter, but he, he was still a leader and people respected him. Exactly. But people respected him because he was able to speak to, to Hashem, something that the others were not allowed to do. He had a balance of wisdom and prophecy, right? Wow. Yeah. He had the balance of wisdom and prophecy. Moses is the prototype of Bittu. Why? For all the others, we are we're really nothing. We are not like Moshe. We don't speak to, to Hashem. Hold on a second. But Moses is something very interesting. God comes to Moses and says, Let the Jews out of Egypt. Go, take the Jews out of Egypt. And what does he say? I'm nothing. I cannot do it. That's not what he says. He says, I'm nothing. But he doesn't say, I cannot do it. He says, I'm nothing, but I will do it. But, but, he says, if someone else was doing it, they'd be doing better. So, you know, I love these people who are egoists, right? Can you help me out? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not valued. That, that's not, that's. No, I, I can't do that. That's not bitul. That's not nullification. Nullification is you do the job, and then you say somebody else should have done it because they're much better than me. Which you understand your place in the world. You understand where you where you are. I gotta do the job because why? I have a unique imprint in this world. There's a unique reason why my soul came into this world at this time in this place. 
There's no soul before me that had my mission. There will be no soul after me that has my mission and no soul in this lifetime that has my mission. So I have a purpose. Birth is God's way of saying you matter. The fact that I was born means I have a unique purpose and mission in this world that no one else has. So you can't go around saying, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, because you'll never get your job done. But how do you get your job done? You need to get your job done with the So we're not saying don't do the job. We're saying do it with Bittu. Be humble. More than humble. cup of water. You want to drink. How do you drink? Take a cup, go over to the sink, you fill it with water. What if you don't have a cup? What happens to your water? You create a cup with your hands. And what if you can't create a cup with your hands? What happens to your water? It doesn't make it to your mouth. If you want to have water in your life, Water meaning blessing, you need to have a cup to hold it. The cup is bitul. The cup is the kabbalah, is the receiving. We have to create the receptacle through which we can receive kabbalah. The only way to do that is through bitul. Good job. Someone says thank you. What do you do? Accept it. Why? Well, it is that bitter? Is that bitter? If I do the job, then I, uh, it's, if, if I do it out of nothing and just out of my goodness. Why? Because this is this is hard. Oh, it's not always about. See, a lot of people think it's about the end process. It's about the process itself, not the end. You say thank you when someone says. A compliment to you, because if not, you destroyed their compliment. You destroyed them. So I'm saying we accept we, we accept that the, the rewards that's giving it to us, if we deserve it. I mean, although we do, we're supposed to do thank you without having this. It's this not. Feeling of, this feeling of it's not thank you because I'm great. It's thank you because I appreciate you. It's, it's to make the other ones valuable too. Because I I I I acknowledge your existence, so thank you. Oh, look how at that. I got 47 thank yous today. You know? That's not what it's about. It's about I acknowledge that you exist and you complimented me. So I will thank you. What am I doing? I'm thanking you, thank you, for being who you are. Thank you for the opportunity of making me feel good. Process. And living within this world, but above it. Being able to navigate this world with eyes that you can see things that are greater than the self. An animal is always looking down. That's the way animals are created. Humans have the ability to look up. We can look at something beyond ourselves. The animal is instinctual. The animal can't see anything beyond itself. That's not the way it was made. We can see what's beyond ourselves. And we can also deny what's beyond ourselves. That's free choice. Just to finish off. There are three distinct stages of Kabbalah. Each represents a conceptual approach to understanding Kabbalistic tradition. Each is identified with a specific historical figure. Moshe Kodavero, also known as the Ramak, 
Yitzchak Luria, known as the Ari, and Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. Each system of thought served to advance the evolution of Kabbalistic theory by providing new and more illuminating frameworks within which to organize the totality of Kabbalistic doctrine existing upon up to their time. These stages themselves correspond to three basic recurring concepts found in Hasidic philosophy. It goes like this. Hishtadlut, Hitlafshut, and Hashra'ah. Evolution, enclothement, and omnipresence. The beginning was always the Hishtadlut. We're going to talk about this. There's a hierarchy to creation. There's an order in which the world runs. It starts off with Keter, with kingship, and it goes through the Sefirot all the way down to the bottom to Malchut, which also means kingship, which is interesting. Then there's his Lavshut, which is the enclosement. For example, there are garments of the soul. Just like we have garments of our body, there are garments of the soul. And then there's Hashra'ah, which is the omnipresence, which is the oneness of God. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. Those three levels, especially we're going to go in great detail about the garments of the soul. I gave you some extra readings here if you want to go through um, some stuff. Sorry, some of it didn't come out, but I think it's all here. Give you some, uh, some stuff here to, to go over. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com Scroll to the bottom of the page and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode. 